0: Coming up on Venture Voice.
1: I think what I've always felt is that if you want real talented people around you, there's not that many crazy entrepreneurs that want a boss, and they definitely don't want me as their boss. And so I felt that if I could kind of just be their caddy and kind of like help them carry some clubs while still play good golf, like and show that I wasn't kind of just a caddy, then people will come and hang out. And I guess in many ways that thesis worked out because we got an incredible amount of people who kind of came and hung out and and built amazing things.
0: This is Greg Gallant. Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm really excited to bring you this episode, this very timely episode with Henrik Werdelin. He co-founded Bark, originally BarkBox, Back in 2011 is a box with uh, treats for pets. And it's just uh, SPAC. SPAC means that it it is a reverse way to become a uh, IPO, to become a public company. Bark is now valued at $1.6 billion. We recorded this episode actually before Bark went through the SPACs a few weeks ago. So it'll be interesting to kind of hear how he was thinking about it just before we go way back into the history before Hal Bark started and we hear Henrik's story. And what I think is really interesting, I know a lot of you out there are listening and you work at big companies. You haven't yet taken that full step into entrepreneurship, but Henrik had a similar path starting working at big companies such as MTV, figuring out how to kind of enable entrepreneurship within them. And then that obviously led him to go out on his own and now has a, a billion dollar success under his belt. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Enjoy. Hey. Henrik, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you so much for having me. So I understand you, you grew up in Copenhagen. Tell me about how you made it to, uh, to America to begin with.
1: I started in Copenhagen and, uh, and did my undergrad there, and at the time wanted to be a CNN correspondent. That was my big dream. And so I did my postgrad in journalism in, in, uh, in London. And after completing my, my college, I, uh, I ended up first at BBC, but then at MTV as, uh, as first as a producer. And then afterwards, I ended up kind of being a, uh, the head of product development.
0: And first, just tell me, like, BBC, that you were doing BBC in London or in America?
1: In London. So yeah, I haven't been in the US for that long. I've only been here for about 11 years. I did my... Postgrad, grad uh, as mentioned, at the University of Westminster, and, uh, and uh, in radio journalism. And um, my secret superpower was that I knew about computers. And so while everybody else was kind of editing on tape, like really like having to cut it with kind of like a, a knife, and I had a, a little computer. And so I had my, you know, 12-track computer ability, uh, uh, editing ability.
0: So when you started BBC, they were still
1: cutting tape? Yeah, well, they were still on tape, but the examiner of one of the, uh, at my degree, was a producer there. And I kind of like came in with my CD while everybody else came with kind of the tape. And so he was like, hey, would you mind coming and helping me out a little bit? And he, his first project was to have me listen to a lot of uh, interviews about Sandy Kubrick's Space Odyssey. And he said, basically, can you lock the tape? So can you figure out like the, the time codes for the good parts? And I took it upon myself to then digitize the whole thing, edit the whole thing up, and then kind of just give him a CD with tons of different kind of good tracks, but where we've reduced the er and the ums and all those different things. And he thought that was pretty neat. So I got a job at the BBC, actually, as I was completing my degree. And then uh, as part of like doing radio shows for the BBC, I got asked to do a show about uh, some music, Europop music, which was big at the time. And now I'm totally dating myself. One of the interviews was with a MTV a presenter called Thomas Madvig, And we kind of hit it off when I was interviewing him. He, I said like, hey, I've always wanted to do TV. So if ever you have any openings, let me know. He took me on as an intern. And while I was there, I was kind of writing my final thesis at night. So I was the last one leaving. And so the bosses would come you know, by my desk because I was the only one in the, in the building and ask what I kind of like was, who I was and stuff like that. And they figured I knew about, a lot about the internet And so one of them one day said, hey, you know, we should make a TV show about the internet. And this is like late 90s, right? We didn't have a website at the time. So I came up with the idea, thought it was a brilliant idea, pitched it. Everybody thought it was idiotic. And so I took it upon myself to break into the studio at two in the morning and uh, kind of transmit this live TV show, which at the time didn't land you in jail, but kind of gave you a promotion at MTV. So I managed to kind of become a very young head of product development for MTV's channels outside the US and did that for a good eight years or so
0: very cool and if i read right on your linkedin you you had a stint between being a producer at mtv and being a, in strategy it looked like you started your own uh, agency of sorts
1: yeah i mean like i kind of all bungled together because i i wanted at one point to do my own so i left to do my own kind of like uh i guess r&d agency but our biggest client was mtv so it was a little bit kind of just moving my office like a few few blocks down the street and then I ended up at back at MTV, kind of like in sort of the same role but bigger. And then really pushed MTV into games and a lot of other things. And so all of uh, it was all kind of like a, a big blurry MTV period. What led you to decide to try to start your own thing
0: and break out of MTV before they uh, before they pulled you back in?
1: <laughs> I mean, like I, I I get excited when people talk about building something from scratch. And I met a guy who. Hey, why don't we just do this, and we can do it for everybody? And and he was a little bit older than me and sound convincing, so I, <laughs> I was like, "That sounds like a great idea." And so I I resigned and and uh, we made something called Triple Dash, and did that I guess for I guess a few years, and did it for MTV, but then also for BBC, and we did like broadband TV channels and things like that. And this is like in the start of the 2000s, so very early, and then. I went back to MTV when they offered me a, a big gig. And then, uh, yeah, I was, I was there until I kind of became entrepreneurial again.
0: And nice. so what's that? Because there are probably people listening who are working at a corporation and like, how do you quit your job, start a company, and then make your former employer who you just burned <laughs> your your biggest client?
1: I mean, like, I find that actually, if you want to start a service company, then that seemed to be the way that it normally goes, right? You, you kind of have this aspiration of being your own boss. but <laughs> you also need a client. And so I actually find if if you work hard and with integrity and you go to your boss and say, you know, and obviously that that job is possible to do as a as an external consultant. I find often that people are pretty open to hear that. I, a lot of bosses out there have a little bit of an entrepreneur in them also and kind of specifically if you're younger kind of just think, you know, you should go for it. And so I had a boss called Eric Keeley at the time, and and he was really the one who shepherded me through all this. And yeah, I owe him a lot of gratitude for kind of always being the one who who bought into my stupid ideas.
0: And so you're doing your own business. MTV's your biggest client. How do they approach that conversation? Like, hey, come back and work here, and here's your job. Uh, how did that go down? And how how hard was it to kind of extinguish the ambition, or you know that that feeling you have being an entrepreneur and having co-founder or CEO on your business card?
1: I mean, it wasn't too difficult because the business wasn't going too well. So it it wasn't like that hot. I mean, like at the time, we had invested a lot of time and energy in becoming really good at interactive TV. And I imagine for most of the people who are listening to this, they don't know what it is. But for a brief second, it was super hot to be able to basically press a button on your remote control and this interactive layer will happen on on top. And, And so we had built... Uh, yeah, all the stuff for MTV and for a lot of stuff for the BBC and the first interactive TV ad for Coca-Cola and all those different things. But the business was really tough and it, it wasn't really a like very business, great business. And so we got sort of like acqui-hired by another team. And kind of that process, I was talking to my old boss and he was like, why don't you just come back? So, I mean, I guess it wasn't too difficult a conversation. It was like a salary, which seemed good at the time.
0: Yeah, salaries are nice, uh, especially uh, after uh, after the entrepreneurial struggle. I heard this quote. I think it was from uh, uh, Felix Dennis, like uh, that a salary is more addictive than crack cocaine.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I I also think. I mean, like I, I feel now the the phrase or the, the term entrepreneur and entrepreneurship is like glorified more. You know, back then, specifically in Europe, it wasn't like very cool to do, and, and so. I always seen myself as somebody who started things, you know, but I would start things if I was in a big company or if I was by myself. Like I helped start a radio station when I was like 14 or something like that, you know, back in Denmark. So, so I've always started stuff. I, you know, I started the school magazine, I wrote the school play, you know, all those different things. But it was never kind of considered entrepreneurship. It, it was just considered, you know, being somebody who were impatient and and I think in many ways kind of wanted to invent a game where they could help define the rules and so they didn't have to work as hard as everybody else because they could kind of like invent rules that made them made them pretty good at what they were doing. I find like this idea of being, you know, entrepreneurial is not necessarily a job, it's an attitude more than anything and and as you know, like I've seen this in my career kind of like work both in in and out in big companies and you know, wrote a book about it and teach about it and stuff like that. And I think this idea of having this very, you know, simplistic view of what an entrepreneur is, which has very much, I think, been defined by the venture community and by Silicon Valley, is just too limited. You know, there's, you know, tons of entrepreneurship, which is starting a restaurant or, you know, shop around the corner, or it's being an entrepreneur in a big company, or it's being somebody who takes initiative of helping solve civic issues. And, and so uh, in my view, the, the word entrepreneur and, and entrepreneurship as such is really just solving problems in a scalable way and, and kind of like trying to find new ways of doing it. And, and that's the type of entrepreneurship I define myself as. So when you came back to MTV, what, what were you
0: most proud of doing there? And like, what, what was the hardest part of launching things in the context of MTV, which I uh, imagine by that point was a pretty big uh, company?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, obviously, I was in my start 20s and suddenly got a big job. And so yeah, I was a little bit more rebel back then, kind of got promoted for, for kind of doing something I was not supposed to do. And so I think that rebellious attitude kind of like uh, I kept for a while. You know, I was very proud of trying to push MTV into computer games. We launched MTV games outside the U.S. and, and stuff like that. And we came up with like a few first, like uh, we were the first to come up with SMS to TV which, again, sounds very dated, but it was a huge money driver for, for a long time. But really, you know, trying to push MTV into games was what I was most passionate about. And, and I think eventually didn't really succeed too well. And we bought some computer games, TV channels, and we launched all these different things. And we launched some a few PlayStation, Xbox games and a ton of mobile games. But, you know, this idea of kind of becoming the, the logo, the the voice, the collection point of the affinity group of gamers that I thought MTV had the opportunity to do was was not something I managed to do, and so I guess it's both what I'm very proud of it, but also like somewhat frustrated I've never been able to really achieve.
0: Do you think that it didn't work because like the product market fit wasn't right, or just that MTV you know couldn't shift to be committed to something that wasn't their kind of core business?
1: Yeah, I mean like first I was just a little fish, right? You know, like I I kind of like obviously held a pretty okay title and I guess like had some influence. But at the end of the day, you know, M T V outside the US is 110 channels in 164 countries. And I think if you want to be a little bit philosophical on it, I think it's sometimes it's more of a founder product fit than a product market fit. And what I mean by that is I found it following my career that it's almost impo- as important that the person who's kind of driving something also has a great intuition and a great passion about the subject matter which you, you're building. And I think a lot of the people who were at MTV at the time was just very into music and probably also was a bunch of the cool kids, right? And, and you know, being a gamer myself, you know, we're not necessarily, you know, we didn't used to be the cool kids, right? You know, it was more kind of like, we're not the ones who got invited to the concerts. We are the ones who are sitting Trying to set up land parties, and so I think there was kind of a, a cultural misunderstanding of that group of, of what they thought would be cool and how you would run it, and it wasn't too seldom that somebody when we were talking about, for example, making TV shows, and and I was showing a you know like a, you know we were airing games right you know like a, you know matches, and somebody from the you know, proper MTV organization would come and say, well, why would people sit there and want to watch you know, like matches? Like you should make an award show and there should be, Britney Spears should come and you're like, nah, I don't think anybody would, would want to watch that. But I think it kind of, it talks to kind of like, if you had like a formula that works and you really are good in tune with kind of what people who like music likes, it could be somewhat difficult to create products and services then to another affinity group because they just think differently and, and they respond you know, to, to different things. It's wild to think now because,
0: uh, I mean, now video games, everyone knows it's a multi-billion dollar business and musicians and celebrities want to attach themselves to video games. But hard to imagine back in the 90s, just how fringe it all felt, especially computer games uh, compared to, you know, even a Nintendo or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, like and, you know, at this time, we're kind of like coming up to kind of like the early 2000s, you know, like mid 2000s. And I think we all knew that it was coming. But even today, I find gaming to be, you know, somewhat of kind of like a considered for mainstream kind of a fringe thing Right? you know, when people talk about esports, they still say it a little bit in a funny way, right? Like, it's like, oh, what is this esport about? And like, how can you be a professional gamer? But obviously, like, it's a real business and, and there's a lot of money involved. So uh, I'm not sure necessarily like gaming has really managed to completely break out of you know the stigma, and if I take it back to what I'm working at Bark, it is a little bit the same thing in many ways. You know, dogs is such a huge industry, but most people consider it to be kind of cute, and so you know, when you talk about like this hundred billion dollar kind of industry, people are, yeah 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 you know whatever. So when we were raising you know money and and kind of starting Bark up in you know, now 10 years ago, eight years ago, whatever it is, then I felt a little bit I was at back at TV trying to pitch gaming because, you know, people couldn't really see that this would be a big industry when there are so many other things that were staring in their faces.
0: So back to that founder product fit idea, were you yourself a gamer at the time in the 90s?
1: Yeah, I mean, like I like I was a, not like the hot coal, I mean, like I would get my, my ass kicked in uh, in all the different games, but... I was into it. Like, it was fun. and Which was your favorite? I was like Battlefield back then a lot, but we played Counter-Strike. And it's a little bit. Then at the office, there was a whole, like uh, we played a lot of soccer. right? Like, so there's Pro Evolution Soccer and there's FIFA and like, there's like, two different groups. And... But I, I thought Counter-Strike and, uh, and Battlefield was kind of my two favorite ones.
0: Nice. Hey, so that's what led you, that's why you were the one pushing at MTV, like, let's get into games because you were, you were playing them yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean like I also just saw it as a big opportunity, right? I saw it as like an, a, a business. I mean like fundamental to how I think about businesses is this idea of finding a specific customer to serve and then serve them with a lot of different products and services. And so I guess in in many ways where other people sometimes see themselves as being good at a specific thing, you know, being a media company or being kind of an e-commerce platform, you know, the way that I compute the world is What is a specific problem a specific group is trying to solve? And then how can I kind of try to solve that with any tool I have in my arsenal? And when once I have a relationship with that customer, how can I treat that customer so well that I have the permission to offer them other products and services? And so gaming for me was just kind of like this huge greenfield opportunity where there's all these people running around spending a lot of money and a lot of their time on something. And nobody took them serious and nobody were their spokesperson or was like created like the environment on where they could kind of exchange their passion. And I think MTV did that for music. And so for me, like, it was just very obvious that gaming would be the next step for them. And I mean, like there was a lot of people internally that was pushing that agenda too. We just didn't really manage to kind of like win the game. Like it might be that everybody believed it and we were just bad at what we were doing. So, uh, so you know, it's not just me like saying, oh yeah, I said we should do it and they did And like, there's a lot of supporters internally also.
0: When you're doing a new venture independently, you kind of know when it fails when you run out of money and, and, you know, it just becomes very apparent or at least in a lot of the cases, but in a big company, what was it like at MTV? Like, you know, it wasn't their main venture and they obviously weren't going to shutting down all of MTV, but at what point are you like, hey, this experiment that I spearheaded it at this corporation like isn't working, and how does that decision get made to like okay, we're we're throwing in the towel on this fund and it, it's canned.
1: Yeah, I mean, like having now built a few things, you know, outside a corporation that's been successful, you know, I can tell, you know, that it's almost more difficult. I think it's more difficult to build something internally than it is externally. It's just you have so many divisions that are set up to keep the status quo. And so it can be the tech team or the brand police or the procurement team or the finance team, like everybody kind of like sort of is for the right reasons are kind of trying to make sure that tomorrow look like today because uh, what they have today is working. So it's definitely a lot of work and there's just a lot of minutia of kind of pitching and getting permissions. And, and so, you know, what I tend to do is I kind of have like what I call default kill switches where I. I think, you know, as an entrepreneurial soul, your biggest asset is your time and not like day to day, like, you know, my time is not worth it, but like working on something that is not quite working for 10 years for me is like worse than failing with something like relatively inexpensively and fast. And so I tend to kind of create these periods, like a, these dates in the future, where basically if I can't do X by then, then my default is to not doing it anymore. And you know, then you give yourself another chance because you're stopping and stuff like that. But at least you have like a default way of kind of like not doing it. And for me, it was like a meeting that we, that I had a strategy meeting for the leadership group. And I basically came in and kind of like said, you know, like, this is what I think we should do. And this is how much money I think it'll take. And, and I had predicted that they would be like, yeah, but maybe we just stay, keep it small for a little bit longer. And basically I decided for myself. And then uh, what also happened was, I had a few friends who were starting a new thing and they uh, were successful entrepreneurs and, and uh, were kind of like talking to me about this other thing. And so I was like, maybe I should just go over and do it there.
0: Tell me about the other thing and what uh, led you out of MTV after all those years working there and kind of forming your career there.
1: I had some friends who had started Skype um, and when they sold that, they had this idea. How do you become friends with the Skype guys? (laughs) Skype was the big breakout of that era. I mean, like one is Danish, the other one is Swedish. And so Denmark is like a 5.5 million people. And so if you run around in London and there's another Danish person there, there's a good chance you run into each other.
0: There's a Danish London mafia,
1: startup mafia. Well, it's just the mafia. The Danish mafia is strong. I mean, like, I think it goes with all kind of small cultures, right? You know, we tend to kind of you know we have the Danish rye bread that we need to get hold of. We have like uh, the Danish candy that's important for us, and so uh, we uh, we kind of find those places. And through a friend, I got introduced to them, and we were talking a little bit about them. and And they had the vision to really, basically, the idea of building a global virtualized cable operator. And so now with Hulu and Netflix and all that, it seems pretty obvious, but. At that early stage, it was very expensive to stream stuff over the internet. And so they knew a lot about PHP technology and, and had this vision for how to do that. And so they lured me over to their new startup and, and I went and, and spent some years with them.
0: So how did they first approach you about it?
1: Oh, I mean, like as all entrepreneurs, we kind of trade in kind of things that we're thinking about all the time, right? And so I can't remember how exactly it came down, but they were basically talking about they wanted to do this thing, and you know they knew that I knew a lot about video and streaming and all that different things. And so they were just picking my brain. And then at one point they kind of gathered a little team. And then yeah, I took the plunge and then joined them. And that was kind of like it was fun because you know they obviously knew a lot, was very known. They're really impressive because they don't they just think very big, right? You know, like there's they wanted to take over the world, and and so. For a few years, I got to kind of like hang in that crew and and really learn about really how do you build a a global internet business? Where were you
0: based for that? Was that still in London or was that in the US office?
1: Yeah. So at the time I was between London and New York. uh, So I would fly back pretty much every week. And MTV also had an office uh, here in New York. So I would also fly back and forth for that. And so I've always had this love affair with New York City where... I kind of get the goosebumps when I when I see Manhattan materialize. And so I always really wanted to try to get here, but obviously as a, as a European, it's not, you know, you need a visa and stuff like that. It's not, it's not trivial. So with them, I got to travel back and forth and, and, um, and help them try to build this kind of a uh, global video empire, in which, you know, for a period of time looked like it would work out. And then at one point looked like it wouldn't really work out anyway. And then, uh, we end up selling it to a company called Atkonian after you know, three or four years.
0: Yeah. And So tell me, this is all with uh, Juiced, right? The startup. Yeah. yeah. And now I, I remember from being in the New York scene back in those days. I mean, that was like the hot startup in New York, and it seemed like it just had all the tailwind to it, with uh, you know big money behind it, being started by the Skype co-founders, and it was this kind of time. If I remember right, like YouTube hadn't. Quite shown its dominance, so it felt like video was uh, was up for anybody. Like, what what was it like inside, and what would you say? What would you say kept it from kind of realizing its potential as this just simply like, hey, this Skype co founders are going to come and take over video the same way?
1: I think when we try to evaluate successes, and you know, those who are not in the internet space, we have a tendency of thinking there's like the one thing. The reality is, I feel, with a lot of these things that it's kind of like the accumulation of many small things that independently looks trivial, but when they all kind of compound together, either makes you successful and unsuccessful. And as you know, statistically, you know, you, you know, this idea that just by packing kind of like very smart people with a lot of money and a good idea doesn't necessarily yield kind of like a multi-billion dollar outcome so I think there was many things. I think really if I wanted to be, you know, if there's like one thing that I really thought was interesting and it was not necessarily what made us not win. But I think that Netflix really changed the game when they put a hundred million dollars into uh, House of Cards. YouTube, you know, like at the end of the day just went for piracy. So, I mean, like, uh, you know, and I think would probably have had I don't I don't know it very well, but. I think they would have had a hard time if they were not owned by Google. So they pretty quickly got sold. And uh, so if you really look at like, the industry, I think uh, House of Cards kind of made the big difference. And, and what's fascinating is that House of Cards not only you know, like were a big bet, they did a lot of things, right? They took all the episodes and make them you know, consumables at once. When you're a monthly subscription business, does not necessarily make intuitive sense. They basically took all their money. And put it on one show. At the same time, Amazon did the same thing, didn't take all their money, but they in- invested using the data that they had into a similar type of show, which I believe was called Alpha House or something like that. And it has the same premise. It's like political, all those different things, but just wasn't the hit show. So I think a lot of things happened. Bandwidth was expensive. There was a, YouTube came off, made bandwidth much less expensive. All the media companies didn't really know what they wanted to do with the rights. And so some went to us, some went to Hulu. And then like kind of out of nowhere, Netflix just changed the whole game. So I don't know. I I mean, like, I think there's a ton of things we could have done differently. But I also think the reality just is that you have to take swings. And sometimes you you hit the ball and sometimes you don't. and, And we didn't hit the ball as well as we had hoped to.
0: Now, what's it like actually being in a company like that? Because it sounds like at MTV, you try something new, but you all know you're getting paychecks. MTV has, has this uh, great revenue stream that uh, yeah still hasn't been disrupted totally decades later. Um, but now you're at Juiced. It's got... Uh, how many employees was it at, at, at the height? I mean, like two or 300. Yes, yeah, so you've got a lot of people. You've got... Um, all this hype in the press. So you're very high profile. And then you start realizing like, hey, this thing's not going to work. I don't know, like, what's it like inside, you know, the mood and how do you manage your own psychology? Because it's got to be challenging knowing like, hey, we we came with so much optimism and so much wind behind our back. And now we're realizing like, you know, it's not quite lining up for us.
1: I mean, like startup life is always stressful, right? And so, It's level of stress. (laughs) And now, obviously, the days that things are going well, you know, you get more adrenaline than the days where things don't. And so, there was definitely kind of periods where we were like, you know, what should we do? We started with a download client and then we pivoted into being, you know, a browser client, which obviously also was like a big discussion. Roughly at the same time, Spotify, like just, just after Spotify started with a download client. And so, there's a lot of things like kind of going on that. So I mean like it was stressful. I think what a lot of people who have not started companies realize is that you're always on your back foot in many ways because you know there's just endless amount of things that doesn't work all the time. And so your to-do list of things to fix is just endless. I think what I learned was, you know, a few things. One is, you know, you have to kind of take care of yourself in many ways like if you don't sleep and you don't eat well and you don't get to work out a little bit then it can get to you very fast. I heard Richard Branson once give the advice. He was asked, if you had only one advice to give to an entrepreneur, what would you give them? And his answer was, go to the gym. And I think that's probably one of the most sane, most sane advice that I have. And so, yeah, it was definitely kind of like uh, fun when everything was very hype and less so when kind of like things, you know, it was tough to hit our numbers. I think you, you just have to, you know, plow through. What was your personal life? Were you exercising and were you
0: getting a good night's sleep? No.
1: <laughs> I learned that after. That's why I'm trying to uh, promote that idea to other people. Uh, no, I mean, like you were working all the hours, right? Because you, you had uh, all these different ideas. And then at one point, kind of like when, when it looked like we wouldn't win, then you want to make sure that everybody you worked with that you lured into to this company is going to like land well. And you want to make sure that you, Return as uh, nothing else as much of a of the capital as you can and and stuff like that. So, I mean, like I was lucky. I kind of got picked up by a venture fund at the tail end of it. Another thing, which I think actually is is an interesting point. I find what's so unique with the U.S. and what Americans should just be very proud of is their appreciation of people who are trying. The feeling that you get in the U.S. when you worked on something is, I think, very much like you know, like the attitude that that you just showed, which is like curiosity of how was it and, you know, how did that work and what did you learn and what's next and stuff like that. And in Europe, like people just look a little bit at you like you have cancer, right? Like, like slightly with like the tilted head of like, you should have stayed at MTV, shouldn't you? Right. Like that, that would have been much better. And so I found a lot of comfort in, in having, in many ways helped to redefine a category. You know, a lot of the interface design that we invented became just common practice. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that we did, kind of like I can now see kind of like a being used in a lot of services and, and people who are in the industry you know, often know the work that you've done and that makes you incredibly proud. I think, you know, for me, like it's always been the drive of trying to come up with something and then see it in the wild. This idea of you get a big paycheck at the end of it, kind of obviously you would like that too. But if I was just motivated by that, I should have stayed at NTV.
0: <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. So you're at Juice. How exactly did it end? Did they say, hey, we're not raising an, another round, go find a job? Or did they just tell everybody one day you're, you're, you're laid off and you're on your own?
1: You know, at the, at the tail end, like I, I wasn't kind of like in the senior management team at that point. So I don't really know kind of like how the whole thing played out. You know, at one point, basically, I didn't have a job anymore. And so uh, then you're kind of like looking at yourself and, and feel that you have to go out and tell everybody that this thing that you've been going around touting as like the next thing since sliced bread is not going to be so. And so, yeah, it definitely takes a little bit of like wound licking.
0: And had you moved to New York by this point?
1: No, uh, I got offered an entrepreneur in residence job and got to lick my wound there, which was I was very grateful for.
0: And how exactly does this entrepreneur uh, in residence go down?
1: Yeah, I think that is the whole, I think, mystique about venture. It's not really a job. I think different funds have different ways of doing it. And so I think it's all depending on what it is. Some of them are paid. Some of them are not paid. Some of them gives you kind of access to stuff. And stuff. so I think it's, it's just a little bit of like a, it's like a fellow, right? You know, it doesn't really mean anything. But for me, it meant that I had a bit of time to kind of like just breathe and, and figure out what I wanted to do next. Was yours paid? Mine was paid. Mine was paid. That's nice. Yeah, yeah that was very nice. Yeah, I mean, like I didn't have any money, so uh, <laughs> it was kind of a requirement. And then uh, I, what I really wanted was to move to New York. And so I had just met my wife, and, and uh, I had to convince her. We put uh, you know, our savings onto a business account and came up with a concept and applied for a visa and got a visa and then kind of landed in New York with kind of X amount of money on our account to kind of like swing for the fences and then yeah, just went for it.
0: How did it play out with that venture firm and then how did you come to starting? I believe it was uh, Prehype, your venture development firm.
1: Yeah, I mean like they, uh, Index at the time didn't have a lot of faith in New York City. Uh, so they were more focused on San Francisco. What year was this? 2010.
0: Yeah, it's wild to think. Back then, I remember all the VCs were like, I don't want to invest in anything I can't drive to in 15 minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, New York's startup scene was relatively, like, it was, you know, the the New York tech meetup was like 20 people, right? And Nate Weisheimer and Andy Wiseman and Sam Lesson from Dropio. And like, there's like BetaWorks, Dropio, you know, like three or four other startups. Actually, I was
0: subletting from Sam at uh, the Drafio Dumbo office back then.
1: I mean, like Dumbo was a place you wouldn't go to, right? You know, so uh, so it was a relatively small scene, and so I, I kind of, I basically wanted to create a halfway house for entrepreneurs that didn't know what to do next, because that was me, and ended up really as my first project, I guess, helping. Uh, a little startup also in Dumbo uh, called Hot Potato.
0: I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Justin, uh, yeah. Justin Shapers uh, company.
1: Yeah. So Justin basically was like, hey, could you help me up with product a bit? And so I got like a few days consultancy, kind of working with, uh, with him through, through the startup. And, uh, and they got picked up by Facebook. And so I made a little bit of money and enough to kind of like get going. And then that was really when we got like a, a bigger office and, and started to gathering a group of people. And so, out of Prehype's very non-fancy office in Eldridge Street in Chinatown, uh, we build uh, you know, what then became Bark and managed by Q and Enco and Roman and a lot of other things. And so, uh, so that's kind of like the nucleus of what started. So, how exactly does a venture development firm work?
0: Like, did you? <laughs> how do you make money? How did you? Divi equity with, uh, with, with the other folks you were working with on these actual operating companies?
1: I mean, like at the time there was no studios really, like Betaworks was the thing and John and Andy was running that and was very, very helpful. So, you know, good New York tech team players. Um, at the time I thought what we could do was to build really help big companies build new ventures and then use that as the currency to get people who wanted to build their own things to go in and help uh, these uh, big companies out a bit while kind of getting more run rate for themselves. And so we built a business that basically went in and created the incubation program for a bunch of the Fortune 500s. And that capital we then basically split uh, for the people that were there. And then we knew that people would be working on their own projects at the same time. And so I started to work pretty quickly on, on Bark with Matt and Carly
0: how do you meet the two other co-founders, Matt and Callie?
1: The headline is I met Matt, you know, when we were, when we woke up in a hot shaped bed on a cruise ship. Uh, so that's the the true story. The more nuanced version is we, um we were at the summit series, which was like kind a conference. And uh, if you had taken the cheap ticket, you would basically get roomed with somebody else. And they've taken the bed and they, it was a double bed, but they split them into the different size of the room, the size of the room, but, I thought it'd be hilarious to put the bets back together. And so I was the first one in the room, put the bets back together, remade the bet, and then kind of went for a drink. And Matt came in later and also went to bed before. And so first time I ever meet, you know, my now co-founder, I'm kind of lying there on the duvet, and it's a somewhat of an awkward moment. But we then started to talk a lot about how do you how do you build businesses? And and we had both tried kind of like hype businesses and what do we want to do and where were we in our lives and stuff like that. And I thought he was incredibly insightful and I was trying to kind of lure people into the pre-hype fold. And uh, the way I did that was to basically say, hey, why don't you come into the office and we brainstorm, we'll brainstorm about ideas for, for a new business. And that's kind of like, yeah, the first time I met him.
0: How does that go? Like when you're at the venture development firm and you bring someone like Madden to start the business with you, like, how do you divvy up the equity? Who puts in what cash? Like, how did all that go down?
1: Yeah, I mean, like now I feel there's all these studios and there's programs and like you get this share and this you get this year. Like we were just all making it all up as we went along, right? So there was no program, there was no rules. Like there was an office and there was me and there was a bunch of other people. And so pretty simple pre as asset core have always been kind of like this front, if you like, for all our activities. But like a, I guess like a artist co working space or as many law firms, people kind of had their own book, so to speak, and so you were working mostly on your own thing, and you kept the equity. And what a lot of com- a lot of the companies uh, that came out of it then did was they participated some back to the mothership. as kind of like a tip of the hat. And then as we matured, we became a little bit more formal, and we started to kind of invest and stuff like that. But in the early days, it was come and hang. And that was kind of like the the structure. I think what I've always felt is that if you want real talented people around you, there's not that many crazy entrepreneurs that want a boss and they definitely don't want me as their boss. And so I felt that if I could kind of just be their caddy and kind of like help them carry some clubs while still play good golf, like, and show that I wasn't kind of just a caddy, then people will come and hang out and I guess in many ways, that thesis worked out because we got an incredibly amount of people who kind of came and hung out and, and built amazing things.
0: What was the founding idea with Bark? What, what was kind of the first moment that it
1: really started to congeal? I mean, I'm back maybe to the earlier point, I never had these kind of lightning moments. Matt and I first were brainstorming and pretty quickly thought, hey, Matt has a dog called Hugo. And I was you know, hosting a lot of dogs, like fostering a foster parent. And we were like, hey, there isn't really any cool stuff for our dogs. And so why don't we make a, a box for dogs? That was kind of like the extent of the brilliance. And so I kind of whipped up a WordPress template over the weekend. And, and then on Monday, or whatever, kind of showed it to Matt. I was like, hey, look at this. And I think it was called something dumb, like doggy baggy or something like that. It was like not as thought through kind of thing. But it had, like, the core, right? It had, like, you know, you get two treats, two toys, and a chew, and there's a box, and you get it every month, and there's a dog that gets happy, and it costs you something. And we started to show it to friends and show it in dog parks to kind of people. And the response was pretty amazing. Everybody that we showed it to pretty much was like, that's really cool. Like, just sign me up when you're ready. And Matt, I think, started by having Square on his phone. So he's like, oh, well, I'll take your money right now you know, then that's first when you really get people's real complaints, right? Like that's when you know, if you have something, because a lot of people then just swipe their cards. And so Matt and I had like, I guess, 70 accounts. We had like a WordPress template and didn't know how, what to do next.
0: And the promise was you were going to ship them a box in the mail every month, uh, if I understand right.
1: Yeah. So, you know, very inspired by Birchbox at the time, who, by the way, was also incredibly helpful to us. Like, Helped us and pointed us in a lot of good directions. But uh, we didn't know how to do this stuff. You know, Matt and I are not necessarily the most operational, (laughs) savvy people. And so Matt was running something called Dog Patch Labs at the time, which were a co working accelerator that a venture firm had started. And there, uh, Carly, our third co founder, was kind of hanging out. She was starting Uber in New York at that time. And so I believe was the first hire, of, you know, in New York, but in the 14th hire or 16th hire, like in Uber Global. But really wanted to just basically make her own thing, and so we, much to her later regret, lured her to join us and uh, and build Bark instead of building Uber. And so she just started to kind of go like, okay, you know, I need to find out how to get a box, and I need to get to 70 people, and I need to find cool things. And she is like a force of nature, so. You know, we blinked twice and Kali ran through three walls and, and, uh, and had, had sold it out. And from there, like it just really grew very rapidly. Like we put up the real website then and, you know, it just resonated with people. And so it's funny, I, I find a lot of time with the projects that I've been enrolled, enrolled with that really works, like success tends to be somewhat obvious pretty quickly. Where some of the other stuff that I've done that didn't work out as well, kind of, it's a little bit more a peg because it just, you know, it doesn't have self propulsion. But uh, yeah, so so Kali kind of came in there, and then, you know, we've just been trying to follow her ever since.
0: And how did you manage it for yourself with doing multiple ventures? I know, like I had Al Williams on this podcast a while back, and he was doing audio and trying to do multiple things, and Twitter took off, and he had to focus on that, and. I see that a lot where people try doing the kind of parallel entrepreneurship thing and then one thing takes off and they spend all their time on it. It kind of happened to me in my career with Muckrack too. To what degree were you able to kind of keep up the venture uh, development model and and still be incubating a bunch of things while also being a part of Bark?
1: I don't know. I guess it's the real answer. I think it's probably because and College allowed me to do it. And that sometimes time spent is not necessarily value created. And then I worked a lot of hours. And so I, I managed for quite a long time to kind of run both things. The nice thing with having two co-founders is that you kind of divide and conquer quite a lot. And Matt and Kylie and I don't have too much overlap in our skills. And so I was kinda of like tasked with, you know, the creative basically. So design and product and stuff like that and got to use a bunch of the entrepreneurial people who were in pre-hype and so had this talent pool of very talented entrepreneurial folks who kind of wanted to work on their own things and because I was then building this and because we raised a bit of money I had not a lot but I had some money to pay them and kind of in return for their not paying them as much as they probably was worth I let them kind of like do whatever they wanted to do. And so a lot of the founders that have now gone out and built very successful companies for themselves were, you know, early bark people. And I think because that I suddenly just kind of delivered this army of talent that, and so all the creative was mostly taken care of, they let me do it all. Oh. I didn't get, well, I got a lot of grief, but like I I got, (laughs) (laughs) I got uh, not enough enough grief to scare me away. And I think then after a few years, it was just kind of like that was how it was, right? You know, that was kind of how it always had been. And I think now, the last many years, we became a company that, as I earlier described, really spent all our time and focus on figuring out how do we make dogs and their people happy and one of the skills you need for that is the ability to come up with new products and services and then launch that to your audience and that is incredibly difficult but it's one of the things that prehype is specialized in doing for corporations the insights on how do you then launch from toys to treats to food to membership dog parks to dental products is something that i've been able to kind of like bring in and i think everybody have realized that that added value and so I've gotten a little bit more freedom to do things than than maybe other people would would have.
0: How did you manage that tension? Because I imagine in the early days, you have this dog subscription box product, which uh, I'm sure investors love the idea of the, the predictable revenue and all that. And any dollar you get, you could have spent more money in marketing that dog box and making it better, improving retention. So how do you go about saying like, "Hey, we're gonna allocate this much of what we raise to improving our core product, and then this much to launching new new uh, brand extensions that we're not sure will work"?
1: I mean, like, I think that is an incredibly good question. That I, I guess now when I think back at, I'm not quite sure how we managed to do. The core business always grew quite a lot, and our business still to this day just keep growing a lot, and so. I think when things are going up and to the right, you get a lot of permission. And so our board, which is pretty much the same board as we've had like since we started, have always just been very supportive in, in trusting us. And I think have seen that some of the very counterintuitive things and moves that we've done, strategic moves that we've done uh, along the way, you know, kind of panned out. So it was a big move for us to go from buying other people's products to 100% designing and producing our own. And we did that many years ago. And that wasn't necessarily that intuitive at the time. I think it was a huge bet that we really doubled down on our customer service, what we refer to as our happy team, which is really the beating heart of our organization. And so very early on, you know, various team members Basically, a guy called Mike and, and Hanan kind of like came to us and said, This has to be cool, what we do. And, and Matt and Kylie kind of like were, were a big proponent of that too. And so it's probably the biggest team we have. We think the world of the people who work in that team, because they're really the ones who talk to our customers every day. And we learn about product development and how we reduce churn and everything through them. But, you know, hiring 100 people in Columbus, Ohio to do your customer service was not necessarily a very the normal thing to do at the time. And so I think we have shown quite a few times that we were willing to experiment, that we were very frugal with killing these projects if they didn't show very quick traction. And then they bought into our overall strategy that the world needed a new brand that was, you know, did for running that what Nike did for running, uh, did for dogs, what, what Nike did for running or did for transportation, what Uber did or did for home exercise what Peloton did. And that kind of like one core cool customer, many products and services was something that we've been promoting for quite a long time. And, and that required us to kind of keep experimenting with new things that we could offer. How
0: many products and services for, for dogs and dog owners did you launch? And then what portion of them worked and what portion of them were experiments you had to kill?
1: I mean, for me, it starts from when we started Bark, where the rules were I could do whatever I wanted to do on the website, but every Sunday Matt would have day-to-day and if we had lost basically on our KPIs, we would just roll the whole side back a week. And so I think what normally happens in organizations organization is that it's so difficult to convince people. And so you just have like all this negotiation. So the features and the ideas that you express becomes really watered down by the time you implement it. And so you get kind of like nice kind of like Small gradual kind of like changes. We've always had a little bit more of like, let's try stuff, like, let's not overthink it too much. But then if it doesn't work, let's kill it. And I think in the same way, we're using a lot now this thing that we in Prehab called signal mining, which is really how do you take whatever thesis you have and you test it most cheap and quickly. And so this is all the way down to we do poo backs with funny kind of like phrases on, right? Like, a, make locks, not a hole, or I love you when you call me big pooba, those kind of things. But before we do that, we will buy Instagram ads and we'll just see what people click on. And so this idea of taking art and science and fuse those is something that we've always been very big on. And so the answer to your question is, it's kind of like, okay, because we've probably done 50, if not a hundred kind of like different things where we just, they never materialize into something. And sometimes even with, like, for example, we have a, a very successful health line called Bark Bright, which is a, a dental stick that helps you keep your, your dog's all hygiene in order. We launched that on a completely different brand first that had nothing to do with Bark. And we saw we can get the unit economics to work. And if people really liked it, you know, without having the spill up brand at the time, it was called Chumper's Club. And then when we really knew that we had something, we then took it into the fold.
0: Oh so you were worried if it didn't work or people didn't like it you would have damaged the main brand so you you did a separate brand just to insulate that
1: Actually it was more like we didn't want you know when you have you know millions and millions of email addresses it's quite easy to get an easy signal like you send them an email and if they if you treat them incredibly well and you care as much or you try to care as much about their dog as they do then they will respond to you and so anything that you recommend them doing they will have a positive approach to now you might not know if the product is right yet uh, so you need to spend some time kind of like refining that and so we didn't want to have a false signal by applying the bog brand to a product where you know it wasn't kind of like materialized completely yet i mean like we would never send anything that we hadn't already given to our own dog and so it's less about like damage control and it was a little bit more about false positives
0: Makes sense. So, and which of all the things you tried, what's your favorite failure under VARC brand? Like, is there anything you launched you were like, this is great. I can't wait to get it out. And then you get the results back and no one cares.
1: That's what I feel about everything I do. Like, I mean, like I get very excited as you can probably tell about things. I mean, like we launched a tele-vet service that I thought was amazing. I think it was called BarkCare. Care. And so first it was just like call us and we'll connect you to a vet. And when we couldn't really get the UN economics to work, we pivoted into vets on wheels. And so we had like, we got these really cool scooters and we kind of put a vet on them and they would drive out and the customers loved it. Like the NPS was through the roof. It's just, we had so many opportunities and they were growing, you know, some of them were growing so fast. That's also about having a little bit of discipline and like, which, which horses do you back? Sorry to stay in the, in the animal analogy world, but Mm -hmm. like a. And uh, at the time, we just had other businesses that was growing much faster, and so we we couldn't see ourselves kind of like investing the requirement the, the required amount. Now that we have a wellness line in Bright, it's definitely something we're looking at again. But uh, I like that a lot. The most fun thing uh, to build was probably uh, oh, there's many candidates. We did a did a shop where dogs could do their shopping, which was fun. Uh, so we we put like made a vest with an RFID receiver. And we sold RVDs in all toys and we had the dog come in and play and then the owner could sit and drink a coffee. And then we had this mobile app where the owner could see what toys the dog liked uh, a lot.
0: So you're disintermediating the humans from the uh, dog purchasing process.
1: Yeah. I mean, like what we then learned was like sometimes the owners doesn't buy their dog's favorite toys. They buy the ones that they like the most, It <laughs> <laughs> was an awkward learning. You know, we did a membership dog park at Nashville. We've done... Open Bark Night, a stand-up comedy night. We've done like tw- Coachella for Dogs. We've we've done a lot of things that are kind of like just been incredibly fun. The weed toy we did recently was fun to do. We did like a, a spinach burrito foam toy that resonated a lot with people. So uh, it's a cool job because that you get to make dogs happy and and you get to try little things. I, I mean, like I think you mentioned the same thing. You know, like in one of your interviews once where you know when you have to stay in a company for 10 years, you know, like if you get to do a lot of different things, like then it doesn't feel that long.
0: Yeah, my, in my experience, it was always uh, just changes all the time. And give, give me a sense too about how Bark has changed over the years. How quickly did it grow in scale from the three of you to the employee sizes of today?
1: I mean, like what are we, we started in 2012. And so I guess we're eight, nine years in, we're 450 odd people now, 440, I think is the last count. And it's just always just been growing very fast. You know, we have a lot of open roles and, and will continue to grow. And so it seems to be just kind of like one of those companies where it's built by a lot of people who really want to try to solve the problem. And they're there for the right reason. And and, you know, there's just endless amount of docs that we can serve. And so and there's any amount of new products that we can build. And so it seemed to be to be a journey that can continue for a while. We've never had like the the real step functions. You know, you look at Twitter's growth arc, you know, like they were flat for three years and then suddenly they just kind of like went off the chart. I think we've just always been kind of like up and to the right. And so, I don't know, I'm anxious type. So I hope that doesn't change, but so far so good. How many employees are there today? I think, you know, now that, that we're kind of going close to public, I'm always nervous of saying any numbers. I, I believe this 440 is kind of like the number that we, uh, that we put out in is 4 And so uh, I'm sticking to that number.
0: Yeah, I guess it, it must change the game. And let, let's switch gears to that. I know um, you're not the CFO, so I won't press you too hard. But, but for anyone who doesn't know this, what's a SPAC? I know you're going through the SPAC, and that's the, the cool, you know, the, the thing everybody's talking about now in this startup financing world. What, what is it and how do you guys decide to SPAC? And can I use it as a verb?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I'm not the representative of SPACs. Uh, I mean, like we have always wanted to be a public company. And so pretty much from day one, we had always eyed this idea that this company should belong to the people that we serve and, and, and we would like them as our shareholders. And so we've been preparing... With all the internal kind of like tools and, and requirements for a while, and was really looking to think of public kind of like this year, and then Spotify introduced direct listing, which is you know where you, you list on a on exchange um, in a more like direct way. I actually don't know the details, but they kind of that kind of like started to be a conversation, and then and then Spac's, which I understand has been around for a long time, which I think is short for a special purpose acquisition company. And what they do, and again, I'm not an expert, is that they raise some money and they go out and try to find a company that they can merge with. And then in return for the capital that they raised, you know, they get a chunk of, of the company and they are already public. So by merging with them, you become a public company. Then you go through de-SPAC process and then you basically are a public company and at the end of the process, you know, there's no real difference between you and, and any of the other forms of going public. And so, you know, we were you know busy in in doing our end year sales, and ran into uh, john and, and joanna and we've like I had asked him a few questions before because it started to be a thing that people had asked about, and through a friend i I kind of like knew that he knew a lot about it, and so I've asked a few questions on him, and so kind of knew who he was and then they came and basically said, "Hey, this will be a really good way to to take you public and It'll be good timing, and and uh, you know some all the prices for spec. And so, you know, we've actually had talking to a few different companies and stuff like that. But we really liked them and thought they would be a good contribution to us as a company. They, Joanna is kind of a a media exec, so she understands the media landscape pretty well. And we, in many ways, see ourselves as an entertainment company you know, like a, a Disney for dogs, uh, if you not, like. Not an MTV for dogs? <laughs> not an MTV for dogs. Well, MTV, I guess Nickelodeon for dogs, I'll take. <laughs> but Disney, of course, like is, you know, is just making family, you know, kids and, and their parents happy. And, and we try to do the same thing for dogs and we use toys and theme parks and, and all the same thing. And so she knew a lot about that. And, and John knows a lot about the financial industry. The timing seemed to be right. And so um, we went that route. How does it work?
0: Do the... People like John and Joanna in this case, do they become your bosses, or are you their their bosses? Do they do they get out of it after the merger? Like, what's how does the management of the startup then fit relative to the management of the, the SPAC people?
1: I don't know how it works in general. You know, like, I think it's like entrepreneur and residents that different SPACs have different kind of way of operating. Uh, John and Joanna is scheduled to kind of join our boards, and so in in that way, they are becoming our bosses, I guess, because. Uh, you know the board at the end of the day kind of make sure that we we do the right things for the shareholders. But other than that, they've been, uh, I think they as the other spacs kind of look for companies that are well one run that uh, that has a strong management team that you know are growing that has a real business and we seem to fit those parameters. And so uh, I don't think they have aspirations of coming in and trying to change anything. Joanna does have a cat, and so you know we have to uh, always uh, be, 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 be make sure that the sneaky cat people don't steal all the dog secrets.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have to uh, start a whole new line of business. You can't, you didn't like put that as a uh, insist a on having a dog. Yeah,
1: no, I didn't, but uh, we are still working on. it. I think she does have like uh, she have access to a dog, and so uh, she's uh, she's not at all cat. And tell
0: me now, where are you in the SPAC process? Is it uh, still in progress? Is it all completed?
1: It's still uh, uh, in process. It takes a period of time from you announced until that you are finally your de-SPAC. I'm not too involved. So my day-to-day focus is really just keep growing the business. If there's one thing that I've learned with fundraising and now SPACs and going public is the one thing to make sure that you have a lot of optionality and a lot of decision making is to make sure your business is doing well. And so, I'm keeping my head down and making sure that we keep our, uh, the dogs and and their people happy. And and then I make sure that uh, I'm sure that then like the the finance team and and our advisors and everybody else is working hard uh, on making sure that we de-spec is doing it as fast as they can.
0: How distracting is going through something like this for the team? I mean, I've heard. Uh... You know, with a traditional IPO, a lot of entrepreneurs tell me that it's it's hugely distracting, and everyone's busy thinking about what sports car are they going to buy with the proceeds <laughs> and, and this and that. How uh, how's it been through this back process, uh, keeping everyone focused or setting expectations in the right way?
1: You know, I think it might have been different because of COVID. The office's been closed in March, right, and so we see each other on Zoom calls and and uh, mostly. I think we're also different. I don't know, like maybe I'm just the naive founder, but like most people are in the company because they like to make dogs happy. And that just creates like a culture of, that is different than other companies that I've been involved in or I've seen where it seems that it's more about like, let's build a business and then kind of like flip it. You know, suddenly the founders and the management team and the people I work mostly with, like they, you know, obviously we talk about it and there are things like, you know, when you ask me about a number I'm more nervous than I was before because I know there's rules now that I have to follow right and there's lawyers have told me that if I say something wrong I'll get in trouble but most of the meetings are really about you know like you know what is the squeaker we're going to use in the toy or what is the theme in in the January box and and so that hasn't changed too much there's definitely kind of like you try to make sure that you inform our team as much as we can right Cause Suddenly, you kind of like tell them, and then people are like, What does that mean? And, and obviously, I'm sure everybody has their Excel sheet and is trying to figure out like how, what, what this financially is going to mean to them. But I think for me personally, like I, I always find that if I build cool shit with people I like, then the money will follow. And if I start to kind of focus on trying to build something just to make it successful, then I make mistakes. And so, uh, at least for me, like I, uh, I don't have any sports car. I have an electric bike, so uh, that is my my speedy uh, form of transportation. But I don't have a car. Nice. You have a little basket to keep your dog in, and the electric yeah. bike. There's there's a bark bike. You know, if you search for bark bike, you can see a very happy picture of me and Molly cruising around in Brooklyn. Uh, we got uh, a very nice uh, bike company to make kind of like a, a cargo bike with a with kind of like a, a door in it because it's tough to get big dogs <laughs> kind of into. Uh, into the basket so uh yeah so i don't think i mean like i'm sure it'll change more you know like we're gonna you know when this closes we'll have a bunch of capital that we haven't had before but we've always been a very frugal company like we raised you know 50 57 million something of that up until now and we've never been part of kind of like the big fundraise pr circuit and i think um, you know that kind of like being a frugal sensible business that build something and sell it for more than it costs us to make. is something that we've always valued and not something that I expect to change a lot.
0: How do you plan on splitting your own time now between innovating, creating new products within the Bark family and being involved in completely new ventures and uh, in unrelated fields?
1: I mean, like, I'm still committed to, uh, to Bark. Like there's a lot of stuff. I've got a new title, I think, which is Chief Strategy Officer. And so I guess that sounds very important. And I'll still kind of like be involved in in the brand and the product development. We've have a lot of very smart people who are now running most of the things, like on the product side. Mickle is the chief creative officer, and is just incredible. And he and I have good partnership. And so there's like a lot of different people in the team now that I, you know, that honestly does all the work. And so uh, they call me to to get my advice. And so I'm spending my most of my time on. Uh, on that. And then Prehybe is still uh, you know, working, and, but there's also smart people there running it. So uh, I guess I get to, uh, to have the best of both worlds where I get to uh, spend the majority of my time sitting at bargain and out cool dog stuff. And then I get to go over in Prehybe and, and hang with a lot of very smart entrepreneurial people who are really trying to understand how do you build stuff from scratch. That's great. And then more, more time to spend with your own dog too. Oh, always. She's very excited about that. What kind of dog do you have? Uh, Molly is a chow golden retriever lap mix. She, uh, you know, I obviously done the DNA thing. She uh, she was picked up on the streets of Mobile, Alabama uh, when she was around two. We've had her for about six years now, six, seven years. And so um, she's getting to be a little bit of an older so, lady. Al-
0: Alabama to New York, that must be a uh, bigger culture shock than Denmark to New York, right?
1: I mean, like, weird enough, she likes the snow more than the, the heat. Like, the rain, forget about it. Like, she's not, you cannot drag her out, like, if if there's even, like, a little bit of a drizzle. Yeah, she's amazing. Like, she uh, she's definitely kind of, like, uh, got high expectations now. Like, I feel if I if I give her a non-organic treat, she looks at me like... <laughs> Who do you think I am?
0: She's a true Brooklynite.
1: I know exactly right. She just needs like I guess like she has a mustache and uh, and uh, I guess what she needs a hat or something like that too.
0: Yeah, and some oat milk.
1: <laughs> she is incredible. She's uh, she's the sweetest and and you know like back to the earlier point. It's just such a pleasure building something for somebody that you can kind of like you know, show the product to and then instantly get like a reaction.
0: Wonderful. Henrique, uh, thanks so much for telling your story. And any parting words for entrepreneurs out there who are, who are either trying to start their first business or just shake it up and launch new products within their business?
1: I guess I would tell them not to listen to people who try to give them advice. And, you know, everybody seemed to know everything. What's the Mike Tyson quote? You know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. I think that it's incredibly nice to build stuff. And so, I would encourage people not to think as much about kind of like necessarily doing the, I need to do a startup and so I need to raise capital. If you have an inkling or a little bit of an itch, then start with a side project. And then, you know, like as I was mentioning with Bark, like it can go very quickly for just a little inkling to something that's a real thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, 200 pages of of business planning or or something that has raised a lot of capital. So uh, just do it. The Nike logo do the swoosh. Nice. Henry, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I really took a lot of way out of this, just the value of keeping it a business for a decade, learning about this whole new form of exit, that there's this new option, uh, SPAC, in addition to IPO and many other ways to get liquidity out of a business. Just kind of the journey, and I, I thought about my own career a lot, just how you have to experiment with lots of ideas to see what works, and you never quite know what's going to work out there, and sometimes you get a few curveballs thrown out that you didn't intend for. So thank you, Hendrik, for coming on the show, and really appreciate all of you for listening. Please leave a review, help spread the word, go to iTunes, say something good, helps new people find the show. You can always hit me up at Gregory on Twitter or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. See you in a couple weeks.